If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm Chris Eastwood. I'm Ms. Barbecue. And I'm Steve Pride. Before we start, I want to give a shout-out to artist Keith Herring, who was just 31 years old when he died of AIDS-related complications in 1990. He would have been 57 years old today. Wow, great loss. Wow. Tonight, we will talk to Tim Anderson about coming out in the 80s, diabetes, and his new memoir, Sweet Tooth. Plus, we'll talk in studio with Brandon Alexander III, the star of the hilarious new film, First Period, and we'll also be giving away a couple of First Period DVDs. Hey, Yay, we a love that movie. We love giveaways. We do, but I love that movie as that well. That movie had me cracking up. Plus, I'll talk to writer-producer Stan Zimmerman about his work on shows like The Golden Girls and Roseanne. Plus, we are going to also have DVDs from the film Boy Meets Girl to give away as well. Nice. D- double cool. whammy. Wow. When, when are we going to do that? We're going to do that right now. Right oh, now? Oh, my goodness. Right. If you give us a call, and I think is it the first caller? What number should we what do? Number, what number should you do? The first What's the two callers. The first two callers are winners. The first two callers, you give us a call right now at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK, and you will win a a DVD of the new wolf film Boy Meets Girl. And that's that the star is the trans actress, correct? Yes. That is trans newcomer trans actress Michelle Hendley. It is a natural, accomplished debut performance as a young trans woman navigating Southern life. So we know how that's going to turn out. Okay. Looking for romance from men and women in her small Kentucky hometown, written and directed by veteran New York film independent filmmaker Eric Schaefer. Nice. Well, that's got a little something for everybody. It an does. L, a G, a B, and a T. <laughs> All the letters, <laughs> all the good letters, at least. If you're a male on the side. If you're an I and a Q, call in anyway. But okay. you give us a call right now, 818-985-KPFK, to win your DVD of this brand new film, which is available on VOD. But you can have it in your very own home to watch over and over again. Yes. 818-985-5735. Well, while we're waiting for those calls, we'll go right now to the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Matthew McLaughlin. And I'm Carol Myers. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending May 2nd, 2015. As the world watched the horrifying images from Nepal's 7.8 magnitude earthquake, 
Openly gay former Nepali MP Sunil Pant, who also founded the Himalayan Nation's LGBT Blue Diamond Society, issued a dispatch the following day about the situation for the organization's staff and volunteers. He wrote that at least three members of the staff were missing. Phone lines and networks were down, he said, so they haven't been able to reach out to everyone. The group's main building in Kathmandu has significant cracks that will need repair, and its care home for HIV-positive LGBTI people also has cracks that need repair. Pant wrote that many transgender people in the hardest-hit areas are having trouble accessing toilets, a big problem, he says, as they spend nights in the open. He said that food, water, tents, blankets, and other necessities were not reaching enough people in Nepal, including LGBTI people, especially in the most remote areas. Almost 7,000 deaths have been reported, and officials say the tally could exceed 10,000 before all rescue and recovery efforts have ended. If you're so inclined, there are any number of relief agencies you can contact to contribute what's needed most. For the latest updates from the Blue Diamond Society, log on to www.bds.org.np. Israeli citizens who had traveled to Nepal for surrogacy were evacuated in an emergency airlift the day after the devastating quake. Two planes carried dozens of couples, their children, and expectant surrogate mothers to Tel Aviv. The Jerusalem Post reported that 26 infants and their Israeli fathers had been trapped without shelter, heat, incubators in some cases, baby formula, or sanitary facilities. Heavily expectant mothers were also left without protection or provisions. The Israelis were in Nepal because same-gender couples, unmarried couples, and single people are prohibited by law in their home country from having children via surrogacy. A proposal to lift that ban is making its way through Parliament. Major newspapers are now calling for its swift passage. Israel's interior minister said that the usual process of DNA testing before allowing children to enter Israel would be waived because the priority was getting people to safety. The Age reported that Australian authorities have not demonstrated any intention to assist surrogates carrying their citizens' unborn babies. It's a complicated social and legal issue down under. According to the newspaper, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has declined to comment on what, if anything, was being done to assist Australians who have surrogacy arrangements in Nepal. In other news, lawmakers in Ecuador, by a vote of 89 to 1, have passed a bill to create civil unions for gay and lesbian couples. According to El Comercio, an Ecuadorian newspaper, the measure will allow same-gender as well as heterosexual couples to receive the same rights and obligations of a marriage for pensions, purchasing a home together, and some other benefits. Although the Civil Code Amendment states categorically that a civil union is not considered as marriage, it's being hailed as a step forward for equality in the South American country by local activists. But Yolanda Herrera, an LGBT rights lawyer, told reporters that important issues around surrogacy and adoption remain unresolved. Pamela Troya of the group Civil Marriage Equality said that they want Ecuadorian citizens to open their hearts and minds and realize that for us to have access to marriage or adoption will not generate chaos or the apocalypse. The revisions passed by the National Assembly will go to President Rafael Correa for final approval. While his blessing is far from guaranteed, Correa ordered authorities last September to allow same-gender couples to register their partnerships for identification purposes.
But lawmakers in El Salvador have initially approved a series of proposed constitutional amendments that would ban same-gender couples from civil marriage or from adopting children. The 84-seat legislature in the small Central American country voted 47 to 0 for the package of constitutional changes. The bill needed at least 43 votes to pass its first reading. The right-wing Arena Party led the charge against same-gender couples, while members of the ruling left-wing FMLN abstained. But the measures still need to be ratified by a two-thirds majority, 56 votes, during the new legislative session, which began on May 1st. An attempt to constitutionally ban same-gender couples from civil marriage failed last year. Elsewhere, an estimated 3,000 LGBT people and their supporters marched through Tokyo's Shibuya district on April 26th in the annual Rainbow Pride Parade. The colorful afternoon procession, with many in the crowd waving rainbow flags, also included multiple homages to Lady Gaga. Getting political, participants called on Japan's government to fully embrace diversity and equality, including opening civil marriage to same-gender couples. The English-language Japan Times reported that marchers seemed particularly joyous this year, emboldened by what they see as a blossoming of LGBT-friendly moves by municipalities and companies. Last month, an ordinance passed by the Shibuya Assembly made the district the first in the nation to issue legally non-binding certificates that declare same-gender partnerships as equivalent to marriage and hospital visitation rights and apartment rentals. Other localities are considering similar measures. One of the parade organizers, Fumino Sugiyama, said that the mood was definitely different this year, inspiring them to expand the event to a two-day festival for the first time. Several companies, including Google, clothing retailer The Gap, and advertising giant Dentsu set up booths. Employees from 11 financial firms, including Nomura Holdings and J.P. Morgan Chase, also marched in the parade. A participant from Goldman Sachs held up a sign that read, Being diverse is not optional. It is what we must be. And finally, Washington, D.C.'s Gay Men's Chorus will be one of the first U.S. imports into Cuba following the recent warming of relations between the two countries. Straight but far from narrow LGBT rights activist Mariela Castro, daughter of President Raul, and director of Cuba's National Center for Sexual Education, invited the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington to perform with their new Cuban counterparts, Mano a Mano, while they're in the country. Mano a Mano is already set to perform in Havana on May 8th, the annual International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. The cross-cultural choral compadres will sometimes perform together when the D.C. singers tour the island nation in July. In a media statement, Gay Men's Chorus of Washington Executive Director Chase Maggiano said, The opportunity to perform with another gay chorus in a country such as Cuba is groundbreaking. We thank Mariela Castro for her public recognition of our tour, he added, and the very kind invitation to perform with Mano a Mano. He proudly noted that one of the five Havana-area D.C. chorus performances will be hosted by Casa de las Americas, the most prestigious cultural institution in Cuba. That's News Wrap for the week ending May 2nd, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. 
That's News Wrap for the week ending May 2nd, 2015. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Carol Myers. And I'm Matthew McLaughlin. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. And. Eh. <laughs> oh, look at that. Well, you know, the script says it's my turn. <laughs> I got Thank excited. You. I just got Where excited. I just got excited. Yes, I know. But don't forget, featured on the program this week, uh, you're going to hear... You're not going to hear oral arguments? No, you're not. You're not. Okay. You're whatever you hear. That, that's great. why I got so excited. Just it, tune in. I just tune in. Miss what do I know? I want her to talk Girls about Girls right don't now. know about news. <laughs> I just want to reannounce that we still have DVDs of Boy Meets Girl that we're giving away. Give us a call here at 818-985-5735. Again, that's 818-985-5735. It's the Wolf's new film, Boy Meets Girl, available now on Video On Demand and on DVD, but you can get yours right now when you call in right now. It is excellent, too. It's just a wonderful, touching performance by uh, a newly discovered lead, and she's a trans actress. So I I hope you'll get a copy of that. It's 818-985-5735. You know, in a week or so, we're going to start asking you to call and give us money. So today we're asking you to call so we can give you things. Yeah, free stuff is always cool. It is. And speaking of free stuff... A friend of mine has a new book, which is not free, but we have something we're going to give away after this piece. I sat down with my friend Tim in New York City recently and interviewed him about his new book, which is called Sweet Tooth, A Memoir. Hi, my name is Tim Anderson. I am the author of Sweet Tooth, A Memoir. Sweet Tooth is basically a coming-of-age memoir of adolescence in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's basically got two threads going through it. My type 1 diabetes diagnosis at age 15, and also the concurrent gay angst and hormonal explosion that happened kind of simultaneously. So it takes those two threads and covers 10 years from when I'm 15 to right when I'm turning 26. What was the hardest part of re-examining those years? I had to interview a lot of people, actually. I mean, it's a memoir, right? But I wanted to get things right because I was going to have to be writing about people. And I wanted to be very careful about that. So I got a lot of information from friends. Probably the hardest part was there are these kind of interstitial chapters. There's a chapter, then there's like a kind of a sequence that covers like a, a low blood sugar attack that I have. They're called He's Lost Control, and they're numbered. So He Lost Control, number one, number two. And uh, they're just these episodes that I had as a new diabetic where my blood sugar was going low and I did crazy, stupid stuff. Of course, I couldn't narrate them myself, really, because I was going through it. And I was the one who was kind of brainless at the time. So I decided to have like a third person narrator, kind of a judgmental narrator who is just looking at the proceedings and commenting on them kind of snarkily. But in order to write these chapters, I had to get the information I had forgotten, you know, because it's gone. And a lot of the stuff that I did during those episodes, just I have no memory of. Did you have to research the 80s? That was all in my memory. Music is a very big part of this book. I was a big new wave boy, so I was really into post-punk and all the new wave stuff. 
The Cure, the Echo and the Bunny Man, Susie the Banshees, the Cocteau Twins. It all provides a backdrop for the book. It's kind of a soundtrack to the book. And so I was kind of infamous for carrying around a big plastic grocery bag of cassettes with me everywhere. Well, they usually stayed in my big Plymouth Valari, but I always wanted to have enough music to get me by. It was very important to me. So um, it took me forever to move to CDs. I stuck with cassettes and vinyl. So the 80s, they're in me. (laughs) I didn't have to do any research to present that stuff. What was the hardest part to write? Some of the more sensitive scenes, like the coming out to my parents, wanted to get that right. It's kind of a balancing act because it's super dramatic, but I always want to leaven things with humor because I think that's an access point for people. So the coming out scenes where I came out to my sister and I came out to my parents, those were tricky and I wanted to get them right. And I think I did. I'm pretty pleased with how they came out. What did your mom think about the book? She understands that it's funny. She appreciates it. She likes that I'm a writer, but she's quite conservative. I come from a pretty religious family. And, well, what mother does like to hear her son's musings on sex and sexuality and uh, nude nude wrestling and gay pornography. You know, it's just, it's not something she's dying to read about, so... But she's supportive, and um, you know, my sister. My sister was actually an early reader of the book. She's in the book, of course, and so she provided a lot of good insight. She helped me kind of write about her. Like she and I have kind of a dramatic scene where I'm just lashing out, and um, she's giving me some realness. You know, she's just giving it to me straight. Like you need to calm down and get your crap together. And I wanted to make sure I got that right. So she said that that was a little bit hard to read because it was kind of a volatile argument, uh, time. But she provided me with some good insights into how to present that. So those family scenes, I think, were the trickiest. What other feedback have you gotten? A lot of people have been saying that they learned a lot about diabetes, actually. Which doesn't surprise me, actually. People have kind of a basic understanding of diabetes. And that basic understanding is usually something like, oh, you can't have sugar. They don't realize it's kind of a balancing act, especially type 1, where you're insulin dependent, right? So you are in charge of maintaining the balance between going too high, going too low, keeping your levels level. And so these low blood sugar episodes that I write about And of course, those happen a lot in the first few years of a type 1 diabetic's life because they're going through a period that's called the honeymoon period where right after your diagnosis, your pancreas is still kind of sporadically producing insulin, but it's not enough to not augment it with injections. You can't count on it, but it's happening so that oftentimes you will have too much insulin in your system and that's why you will go low. In the middle of the night, if you haven't eaten enough in the middle of the day. So it was a constant danger in the first couple of years, which is why I was having a lot of them. I was kind of a sloppy diabetic uh, when I was a teenager. I was a teenager being a teenager. You know, I didn't want to test my blood sugar. I I hated testing. I love testing my blood sugar now. I do it all the time. But when I was a teenager, I never wanted to do it. I mean, of course, it was a little bit less convenient then. These days, I just prick my finger, get a blood sample. A few seconds later, I have my number. Back then, I had to prick my finger, wait a minute. The glucometer would count down, 
Then I would have to blot it, and then I'd have to stick it into the glucometer, wait another minute. It was just annoying, and uh, I hated doing it. I hated, I hated everything about being a diabetic. Because I had, a, like the title of my book says, I had a sweet tooth. I, I loved sweets. I never had many opportunities to indulge because my mom didn't keep sweets in the house that much. But the craving was there. I loved sugar. I loved sugary cereals. I loved desserts. I loved all of it. What do you want readers to take away from the book? One of the reasons I wrote it, beyond just kind of wanting to tell the story, I thought it was a unique take on the coming out memoir. I know it's an adult book. I wanted to reach young people as well. I wanted to write the kind of book that I would have wanted to come across as a 14, 15-year-old struggling. You know, it is a serious book in parts, but it's kind of a romp as well. It's fun, and it's funny, and I wanted to write something that a young person could engage with, relate to, and think about their own life and think, I will laugh about all of this one day. That was really what I was trying to get across. This has been a conversation with Tim Anderson about Sweet Tooth, a memoir. Find more info online at timandersonauthor.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Oh my goodness, sugar, sugar, honey, honey, honey. Well, I, I love Tim. I've known him a while, and um, I am actually diabetic. I'm type two diabetic, and it's very common, especially in the gay community. We don't take care of ourselves, and if you if you think you may be, get yourself tested. It only takes a few seconds. Well, we we ignore all the other diseases because we concentrate so much on on HIV and AIDS awareness that we forget there's cancer and diabetes and and, and, and sickle cell and all kinds can of lead stuff. To all sorts of health problems. I mean, that's why I had a stroke eight years ago. Is I had undiagnosed diabetes. Yeah. And like they said, how long have you been diabetic? Like, I am? What? Yeah. I have no idea. Um, actually, if you are diabetic, this is a, kind of an odd giveaway. We've not done this before, but we have some units here, some contour glucose meters. This is the USB style that plugs right into your computer. So if you are someone who uses a blood glucose monitoring system, we have one to give away right now, 818-985-5735. 818-985-5735, and that's a bare contour USB blood glucose monitoring system. And it's really cool. It's the same one I use, but someone was generous enough to donate three or four of these. We'll give them away again on the website as well. Oh, nice. we got another giveaway, guys. Get get your phones and call on in. Oh, these are not cheap. These, this is really one of the nicer meters. So 818-985-5735. Nice. Excellent. Well, Still to come, <laughs> I've c- got writer-producer Stan Zimmerman. And we also have in studio Brandon Alexander III from the film First Period. And I just have to squeeze this in here. May the fourth be with you. Mm. That, that's been going around all day today, so I had to say it on the air. May the fourth be with you for all you we'll Star Wars buffs. We'll be right back. Billie Holiday, one of a kind, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known for her emotionally laden style of singing and distinctive phrasing, Billie Holiday became one of the greatest jazz vocalists ever. But she did have a hard life. Holiday's personal life was as turbulent as some of the songs she sang. She gravitated toward irresponsible, abusive men, with those experiences sometimes heard in themes of heartbreak in her songs. Holiday married trombonist and small-time drug dealer Jimmy Moore in 1941. While still married, she took up with Joe Guy as his common-law wife. She split up with both soon after. 
Holiday had relationships with both men and women, including the first lady of the American stage, Tallulah Bankhead. Holiday later claimed that Tallulah's bold show of affection backstage almost cost her her job at the Strand Theater. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Janet Lundy. Hello, I'm James Randi, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. And take it from me, it's amazing. of the legal right to marry a man and the old despair that was often there suddenly ceases to be for you wake one day look around and say my lovely boyfriend or if I were a lesbian my So my boyfriend married me. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. And I'm Ms. Barbecue. The time is now 727. And that, of course, was Alan Cummings singing Married from Cabaret. And he did finally marry his partner in 2007. So what do you think with the Supreme Court thing going on in just a few months? Will all be married? We will hope. The oral arguments just happened at the beginning of last this week. And we will see what goes on, see what they say. Well, well I still got to find a boyfriend yeah, first. Yeah, will my so. groom be yes, about- will I have a choice in the matter or let's just assign him? Uh, <laughs> right. I didn't hear you, but yes. <laughs> no. Maybe. I'm well, sorry. Segwaying on, segwaying on. Film and television now have made an amazing contribution to changing attitudes about same sex marriage. And I want to first play a clip before we get into this. Play a clip from the Golden Girls on the subject. We've played it before. And a couple of people say we played too much, but no. for me, it never gets old. Never the gets Golden old. Girls. Look, I can accept the fact that he's gay, but why does he have to slip a ring on this guy's finger so the whole world will know? Why did you marry George? 
We loved each other. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment, wanted everybody to know. That's what Doug and Clayton want, too. Everyone wants someone to grow old with, and shouldn't everyone have that chance? <sighs> Sophia, I think I see what you're getting at. I don't think you do. Blanche, will you marry me? <laughs> Thank you, Sophia. I need to go talk to them. Fine, but I'll need an answer. I'm not gonna wait for you forever. Thank you for being afraid. Love that show. I love that show, and I love that episode in particular. You I have know? to say, you know, I, today and and today, if you are a General Hospital fan, it's, it's mm-hmm. no longer something you have to debate over cheesecake anymore because today on General Hospital, D- Brad has asked Dr. Lucas Spencer to marry him, and he said yes. And what? So, going, so the, hopefully there will be there is going to be a gay wedding on General Hospital. You need to DVR this. It's so um, good. Just a few weeks ago, you were interviewing. Um, the I talked to executive producer Frank Valenti and an actress from there, and I'm hoping I'm going to try to get in on that, but it's really awesome. General Hospital is too delicious. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> okay, no, the two of us, though, we actually went to CBS uh, a couple months ago, and we met the man who was responsible for that episode of The Golden Girls and so many others. His name is Stan Zimmerman. Thank you for being a friend. My name is Stan Zimmerman. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm a writer, producer, director, and teacher. Tell me about Little Stan. Little Stan. He was very, very little and skinny and had a Jufro. And I used to do plays in my basement with all the neighbor's kids, and I would invent them and direct them and produce them. And then we would put them up sometimes during school, and my second grade teacher, Mrs. Golden, loved them and would bring all the other classes in to see the plays and then she called my mother one day and my mother's like oh god what has he done now and she said I think he needs to go and study theater and there's a theater school in Michigan called Cranbrook Theater School and uh, my mother called the woman and she said well we only take eight-year-olds and up and I was seven and a half at the time and my mother said just meet the kid and I went in there and she sent me off by myself and the woman came out five minutes later and said we'll take him and it just was magic to me. The first time I went on stage, a uh, big production, and my mother was so super cool. They had me buy tights and ballet slippers. And back then, my father, that was not cool with him at all. So my mother said, just hide the ballet slippers underneath your bed. And I remember coming out the first big show. I was the Herald and the 12 Dancing Princesses. And I had a horn that was literally the size that I was, which was probably like three feet. And I lifted this horn up, and with I took the biggest breath in the world and blew out and then yelled, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. And the place just roared with laughter. And that was the first time I heard laughter after something I did. And it sent like a shockwave up my spine. And then I knew I had to be involved in comedy the rest of my life. And so I've been chasing that. I mean, I was such a nut and I didn't go out and play. So I created my own network in my bedroom with one of those grids with all of the uh, TV shows. And I literally scheduled seven weeks from 8 to 11 of my own shows. And I was that obsessed with television at the time and just studied it 
every every second and just poured over TV Guide and memorized it. And the excitement of when that TV Guide came. Oh my God! Are you kidding? The I fall t- issue. I still have every single fall issue in my house. Yeah, those are the only ones I did save, and every playbill, of course. And so I always just knew I was really creative, and my mind would go crazy places. But I didn't think I could actually be a writer. And then I met Jim Berg, my writing partner, and we just started writing in between classes and writing, actually, TV pilots. And back then, we, there were no scripts we could read. You couldn't go online. So we literally remember watching Alice, the show with Linda Lavin, and writing down, okay, there's three scenes and then a commercial, and then three scenes, and then they have this little thing after. I didn't know it was a tag. We didn't know what act breaks were. And I actually met Linda Lavin. I told her, thanks to her, I owe most of my career because I studied Alice. And we wrote an Alice Speck script in college. What was your first big breakout here? We got a job on a show called Just Our Luck. It was on ABC. And it was known for being picketed by the NAACP because it was about a white guy that found a bottle on Venice Beach and out popped a black hip genie. And he said things like, master. And of course, the NAACP, rightly so, did not like that. And they were also upset that they hired two young Jewish writers that had never worked before, white uh, and no black writers, which was wrong too. But from that first job, literally a month into it, we got offered our first pilot at CBS. Back in the day, what was it like being gay in the writer's room? It was an old boys' network. It was like Gary Marshall and all of his staff of writers, men. And we would read about that, that they'd be playing basketball in between writing scenes. And I thought, well, I'm a horrible basketball player. How am I going to fit in? So we were told in our first jobs, you had to bring a woman or they we'd call him a beard, to any event. And I was doing an Outfest panel two years ago of gay writers, and everyone on the stage was just going on and on, oh, it's great to be gay and out and writing and all that. And I'm like, "Uh, excuse me, it was not easy for me. We could not say we were. One interview we had for a show, the producer said to us, I hear you're violets. And my writing partner and I like went, oh, my God, purple, he knows we're gay. And actually, the Violets is the team name at NYU, which we didn't even know because we never went to a game at NYU. You don't do that. I was too busy going to Studio 54. So we kept it quiet. And then slowly when it would come out, because everyone's talking about their weekend, and we couldn't talk about what we did. And Golden Girls, we couldn't. I mean, I remember Estelle Getty, I think our first day there, she pulled us behind the set and said, I know about you too. <laughs> you're one of us. And I'm like, one of, what does that mean? Jewish? Yes. And then, no, gay. And she says, you're coming to dinner with me tonight. And we thought, well, you know, we're going to have like a little dinner with Estelle Getty. And of course, she brings like, you know, half the cast of uh, all the touring companies of Torch Song Trilogy. You know, there'd be a table full of like 30 gay guys and then us. But I adored Estelle and we became really good friends. And I miss her so much. And I wish she could be here and see it. just how much people really still love the Golden Girls. You know, so many gay men claim that, well, the Golden Girls is just gay men wearing dresses. Yes. What is your take on that? I think it's older women saying things that everybody wishes they could say. And gays, we just are, I think, freer. That's why some people say, like, if you could take a pill and not be gay, would you? It's like, no, I love that part of me. It's just a different slant on seeing the world and being more creative and being super fun and fabulous and having a sense of style. And I, I love that. So, and at the time, there were no gay writers on the show except for us. You know, everyone thinks, you know, Mark Cherry was uh, the writer all along. And he's been very, very sweet in saying, you know, we kind of blazed the trail. We were the first gay writers on the show. And the staff all knew we were gay. 
we were there at the very beginning, so we didn't know it was going to be a hit. And I remember going to the table reads on Monday, and they would read the ratings because you know we didn't have computers where we could see what the ratings were overnight. They would announce what they were, and they would say, "Oh, we're number five, and the next week, and we're number two, and then we're number one." And everyone was so excited, but a little shocked because that just went against anybody's idea of what people would buy in a TV show to have for older women and talking about all that stuff. But still today, it's one of the only shows I can think about that nobody hates. Everybody around the world just loves the four women. I mean, other shows that were popular, you could pick apart Friends or even Seinfeld. But there's something about Golden Girls that is just universal. And that was the coolest thing, to be on the stage and see on the left side, there were these four great actresses doing your lines. And then there was a studio audience cracking up over it. And then I would go home, and it'd be like little kids to my grandmother just eating up every single second of that show. And I felt extremely lucky to have had that so early in my career. You also wrote for Roseanne. We actually got offered the first season of Roseanne. I think they haven't filmed the pilot. And at that time, they said, you have to commit six years of your life. And we said, there's no script, there's no actors. I loved her, but the minute I saw her on The Tonight Show, the next day, we called our agent and we said, can you get us a meeting with this woman, this comic? We think there's a show there. And he said, no one wants to see a show about a fat woman. It's like, okay, and he's no longer our agent. We actually turned down the first season of, of Roseanne like idiots. But then it came back around to us, and we did a year on the show, and we wrote the Lesbian Kiss episode. So where's my GLAAD award? And actually, ABC was not going to air it. And they asked us to cut it so that you wouldn't see it and just see the back of her head. So that's why some of the shots, that's what they really wanted. Luckily, Tom and Roseanne were so adamant about it, and they said, we'll buy the show back and air it on HBO. This is going to be done. We're not stopping. It was so interesting to be writing it, filming it, and then going home at night and seeing this huge controversy. It would be on the news, and then people would say, you know, this is outrageous, and you can't do it, and it's going to bring down ABC. And we had a huge benefit at Studio One for GLAAD with these big screens. It was live then, and we didn't know it actually was going to come on the air or they were going to preempt it with a different episode. And the minute it came on, the place, I'm getting goosebumps, but the whole place just erupted in cheers. Because at that time, you just never saw anything like that. And we were just so excited because they thought all the advertisers would go running. And then when they saw it actually brought people to the screen and the Nielsen numbers were just, you know, out of, just out of the box. It was, it was very, very cool. And I really respect Tom and Roseanne for fighting for that episode. What have you done in your career that you're most proud of? Well, the Roseanne Kiss episode was extremely pivotal for me. But also just being on Golden Girls, it taught me so much about writing. I mean, I never thought of myself as a joke person. I thought I could write jokes out of characters. But on that show, they would send us off with Chris Lloyd, who was like an intern on the show. You know, now is writing Modern Family. We'd be sitting in a room, and they'd say, you know, come up with six blows for Dorothy. And we didn't even know what a blow was, which is the joke at the end of the scene. And we would sit there, oh, my God. And then we would just come in and pitch six different jokes, and that's how we learned. That was our school for writing and come in and pitch jokes. And the best thing was when we learned that B. Arthur didn't need a line. All she had to do was shoot somebody else a look, which we all discovered that in the first year. I mean, we discovered Betty White keeps telling these funny stories that are really super long. I mean, that's what was so great about being on a show first season is that you really create the template of what the show could be. 
the Golden Girls even tackled gay marriage in an episode about Blanche's gay brother. It's crazy that they were talking about that back then, you know, where we are today with all of that. And maybe that's why we are where we are today. We've gotten used to it in sitcoms and things are wrapped in pretty packages. I think people forget. I mean, I give Ellen so much credit, but not all of it. I mean, it really took soap. Golden Girls saying things like that. It took Roseanne to have other gay characters in Sandra Bernhardt and the Kiss episode to break down those barriers before you can get to an Ellen or Will and Grace. You know, and a lot of these articles just jump to Ellen and Will and Grace, but without everybody before and even before me, we wouldn't be where we are today. You've had an amazing career. If you could go back in time, because we have a time machine that we're... Oh, I love a good time machine. And give advice to you. Do I have to to get inside a DeLorean? No, it's really made with duct tape and Uh some bubble wrap. It's always with duct tape, isn't it? Can't afford a DeLorean. (laughs) If you could give advice to young Stan about what the life would hold and what you should... I mean, don't date him is certainly one, you know. Yes. Beyond that, some general advice, what would it be? Dream. Just keep dreaming. Just have a positive outlook on life. When I was a little kid, my father got me a pair of red glasses. And I said, why? And he said, you look at life through rose-colored glasses. And I didn't know what that meant. And when he explained it to me, I thought, wow. And I think that is the way I always looked at life, just in a very positive way and a joy of life and every day. And I just kept dreaming, and then the dreams kept happening. This has been a conversation with prolific writer-producer Stan Zimmerman. Find more info at ZimmermanStan.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. And we want to thank all our listeners for being our friend, too. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And like us on Facebook, please. If you didn't if you didn't get that glucose monitor, we have more monitors available. Like us on Facebook, and you might get a free one, okay? And we give away stuff on Facebook all the time. So just pretty randomly. So if you are one of our Facebook friends or, and like us there, you could be a winner. Not that you're not already a winner. We sound really needy tonight. Do. Really needy. <laughs> no, it's more like, like me. Please like please me. Please like me. Please. Please. Very Sally Field, Pasadena. Transition. Transition. Yes. You know what? One of my favorite films at Frameline last year up in San Francisco was a film called First Period. And I was really looking forward to going and seeing it here in a theater with the Outfest people, and it wasn't there. So it was a great loss for this community. But luckily, yes. the star, yes. the writer, uh-huh. the producer. Oh, my goodness. And God knows what else he had to do to get this film made. <laughs> he is Ooh. here. He's an Angelino, and he is here in the studio with us. His name is? Brandon. Alexander. <laughs> the third, honey. The Welcome. Third. Thank you. <laughs> 3.0. Brandon Alexander 3.0. Exactly. 3.0, honey. That's right. The and first for those of you die. who haven't seen the film, I want to play just a, a brief clip from the very beginning of the film. The film, first period. Here's the opening. Dear Diary, hey, it's me, Cassie. I thought it was important to tell you about a major milestone coming up. See, it's my sweet 16. That's right, Diary. I'm turning 16 this weekend. This is the point where I go from being a cute, fashion-savvy girl to a sensual, sexual, fashion-forward woman. I'm going to have a popular group of friends and super hot, hunky boyfriend before you know it. I'm so excited, Diary. Except, the only problem is we just moved here, so I don't know anybody. My mother lost her job, so she moved us back to her old hometown. Talk about worst timing ever. But I'm going to look on the bright side. 
New place, fresh face. I'm gonna have the best birthday party ever. This is where it's all gonna happen, diary. Cassie, it's time for breakfast, sweetheart. Well, I'm off, diary. No need to wish me luck. After all, I'm Cassie Glenn, totally rockin' superstar extraordinaire. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that was hilarious. Okay. It's the toe for the whole movie hmm. right now. Now we know everything we need to know about the first minute of the film. Yes. What's the whole film about? <laughs> What's it all about? There's more to it, right? Okay. Yes. There's a lot of exposition right away. Right there. Um, it is. A, I play a 15-year-old girl named Cassie Glenn. Uh, I just moved into town with my mother. And um, I have a, a week before my sweet 16th birthday party. And so I want to get everyone to come to my birthday. And the only way that I think I can do that is to become incredibly popular. So I start the very first day of school trying to become as popular as possible. And I run into the popular crowd who does not take that lightly in a very 80s fashion. Uh, but And then I also meet my uh, best friend, also played by another gentleman, Mr. Dudley Bean, um, who's also the social outcast. And so together we try to win the talent show and become as popular as possible. Oh I mean, gosh. how do you relate to this? Obviously, you were very popular in high school. Probably <laughs> not the most popular girl there, but because you have a little bit of a, a beard going on today. <laughs> Which I didn't have in high school. But where did, <laughs> where did this come from? What was the genesis of this story? Um, well, my old roommate and I used to watch a lot of Lifetime movies and just sit around and making make fun of them and talk for all the characters. So I always wanted to make my own just because I thought it'd be fun to like you know watch something that made me laugh. And so I actually wrote a short called Becoming a Woman, A Woman's Story of Womanhood, uh, which was a parody of all these Lifetime movies we used to watch. And so I actually tried to make it with my friend Dudley, oddly enough, but this was years and years and years ago, and we had no idea how to make a movie. So, of course, it fell to the wayside and yada, yada, yada. And then years later, I get a call from Dudley saying, hey, you want to make that into a real movie? I said, absolutely. And first period was born. How fun. Oh so my millions gosh. of dollars. So <laughs> much in a money. Case. I, have a, I, have a, I have a question. Um, I, notice, I notice in the credits and everything, because uh, um, I watch everything, I'm very very watchable like that. Um, <laughs> I, 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 not, I noticed that that there's all original music, mm-hmm. music in the film. Um, do, I, I saw saw that there were there were um, original scores and all that kind of stuff. Who who was the writer and and how did that all come about? And the music was terrific. The music was great. It, it, took, was it took me back to Square Pegs yeah. and Total John Hughes. And movies. this is coming from an actor who has been in a musical film. Yeah. I sing. So you know. Yeah, I should have been know. I should have been on that soundtrack, damn it. Yes, you should have. <laughs> um how'd they come about? Dudley actually found I think they're called um sound alike artists. Uh-huh. Um and they are they're basically composers and musicians that um take something that you want and make something sound just like it. Really? So, they yeah. do that all the time on television shows. Um, you hear it in commercials, too. You'll be hearing a commercial, and it'll, you'll think, God, oh, that sounds a lot like, you know, you shook me all night long, but it's just close. It's just, it's just close to yeah. They call it sound-alikes? Yeah, it's sound-alikes. Yeah. You don't have to pay the big, huge royalties for exactly. it. Which we did not have yeah. the money for. You have to have 30, 40 grand, 50, 60, 80, 100. Oh, and, yeah. And wow. even if you yeah. get a license for festivals, you still have to negotiate a new license right. for a release. But the yeah. sound-alikes, are you know I although after the whole you know uh, you know Robin Thicke and uh, the uh, Marvin Gaye's family thing I don't know if Sondalikes are going to have such an easy time of it anymore but right. at the time it was fine exactly for now it's fine but give yeah. it anytime anything's easy give it a couple of minutes sure. yeah sure. it'll come hard again did, you know, did, 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 did I'm you the and... only one in this room who has not been in a movie 
That you know of. That you know of. Well, the Pizza Boy Delivers 2 was in college. There's cameras everywhere. And there is X-Tube, honey. Be careful. Could become okay. a star. So but anyways, so, so anyways, music, music. Yes. How'd you, who wrote it? Uh, it was a guy named uh, Ryan Botters. Broders. You guys are close friends. Well, I know we're like, they're so like close. This. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shout out to Ryan. Yeah, and then we had um, Matthew Carrier who did most of our music. He actually wrote a bunch of original songs, and he actually got us uh, one of the contestants from one of the seasons of The Voice to do all the singing. Oh, nice! Oh, there, there's a really touching song in there, and a really slow song montage one. When you, I won't say everything, but there was a sad moment. Tell me in this, there, Brandon. And it was really good. Yeah. Have you performed as an actor? You've performed mm-hmm. always in, in drag roles. Do you consider this a drag no. role or performing as a female? This was my first what do you, what time. What do you call this? I, I don't consider it drag. I just consider it playing a female um, just because I've I've seen RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't think I could pull that off. Okay. So that the, is some talent. Because that's, cause that's mm. interesting because you chose, you know, you and, and another you know male are playing female roles. Right. But you don't feel that's a drag role. No, because. Um, do you I, feel it's campy? Yes, it's definitely campy. It's more campy. Yeah, but I feel like drag queens are like you're very. They are. It's a very specific type of entertainment. Uh, very like stylish and fashionable. And these girls are meant to just be females, very kids in the hall type. Very much so. Um, but I didn't want anyone to misconstrue that we were ever at any point making fun of females. So that's mm. why. we So had... what's your research then? What do you? How do you research if you're playing? If you're playing a female as, mm-hmm. as a female really is, what do you do? I didn't necessarily see anything that we did having to be female specific um i don't think i don't really see any this character or any character that's being written like uh anything that i I would have to be considered female might be too stereotypical so then i think everything that was done in there either a male or a female could do so that's Mm -hmm. how i went in on it just thinking like you know gender didn't really come into play they just happened to be girls right Right. Yeah. It's just hard. You know, there's a lot of male, there's a lot of men playing females, you know, the uh, the Eddie Murphy stuff and the Tyler Perry stuff. And so it's just always good to, you know, to analyze it and see what's going yeah. on with it. Yeah, but, that's another reason. Like, I didn't want us to, like, act too girly. So, like, it'll come across like we view women as uh, cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. I just wanted us to play just these parts. And question, how was it snagging Cassandra Peterson and Judy Tenuta? Well, Judy's was, my friend. Judy's your friend? Yeah, yeah. She was amazing in it. Yeah. She was hilarious. Yeah, she was excited. And I really wanted her to be in it because I love her. And yeah. we've always wanted to work together on camera together. So yeah. we did that. And then Cassandra, I didn't think we'd ever get her. We just figured why not. Cause she's we, really sweet. We, she was in a film oh, I did amazing. too. Just, yeah. just really gracious. Yeah, we just sent her agent the script and crossed our fingers. And oddly enough, she read it and she loved it. And she called us and said, yeah, I'll totally do it. Oh and my you gosh. also had uh, Jack Plotnick. Yeah, yes. Jack was in it too, yeah. Yeah, Dudley's friends with him. And um, I was a huge fan of Girls Will Be Girls. Yeah. So I asked him, I asked Dudley if he would ask Jack. And uh, Dudley did. And thank God he said yes. Now I heard, now if this is true or not, that there were certain gay festivals that thought you weren't gay enough. Oh, what? yeah. We got that quite often. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, you weren't gay enough. Yeah. That's How much saying, scared I, can you be? That's yeah. like saying I'm not black enough. Really? Yeah. Well, it's funny. Even Outfest told us that uh, um, we weren't gay enough of a film. <gasps> but you hear enough, that, Outfest? Why although, would they say putting that? You on what, blast. What, what do you think led him to think it wasn't gay? Well, I think it's because we didn't play either gay men or lesbians, or there was a main specific gay storyline of I would like to be with a gay person which I thought was wow. silly um, but I don't know Outfest also asked us like which studio was backing us and how many sponsors did we have for the film so after we said we didn't have any the conversation kind of ended pretty quick you think that was a cash question yeah pretty much hmm. 
Really? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a whole nother story. Whole so, what, so, what are, so what are you working Before on now? Before going further, we do have some DVDs to Oh, that's away. right. Yes. We do. Yes, we do. So if you want to be a winner, we got a couple, right? Yes. If you want yeah. a DVD of this amazing movie, really you can good. call right now for 818-985-5735. This is for the DVD of First Period. 818 818- what is this, Miss B? 818-985-5735. Again, that's 818-985-KPFK. Call in now, and this movie will have you rolling and cracking up, okay? The writing on this is so sharp. Yes. Thank you. I mean, and it, I, I and it goes of, there. I was writing things down because I mm. want to say it in real life. It goes there. It won't sound it natural there. like you did, but it was like, wow. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> what you talking about, Maggie? Maggie. Yeah. Just, just. I just rolled. Well, I spent forever like uh, writing for stand-up comics. I just wanted to make something that literally had a joke every one second. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if you had like improv, Mm -hmm. improv material and stuff. What are you working on next? I've got a couple films coming out. Uh, I'm actually voiceovering a couple video games coming out. So, um, oh, nice. Well, what is the website for the film? Uh, Firstperiodmovie.com. So they'll have all the information that they need? Yeah, should have everything on there. Or you can find me at Twitter at Brandon Alex III, and I tweet stuff about First Period all the time. Well, thank you oh, so nice. much, Brandon, for being here it's with really us. Thank you. Love your film. Thank Can't you. wait to see what you do next. <laughs> well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage. Take Tim and Prolicos by the hand and exit to the far, far left of the tram's forward motion. Our special thanks to our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, MMG. Our social media master, Matthew Matthew McLaughlin. McLaughlin? McLaughlin. Sorry, Matthew McLaughlin. Yeah, he did music on first period. Yeah, I know. Coordinating producer Steve Pride and our Rainbow Minute producers Jeff Proctor and Brian Burns. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link is to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday. That's noonish. And now the KPFK Spring Fun Drive begins tomorrow, and IMRU is not going anywhere. You hear? Right here. Tune in and support us next week as we conclude our chat with the 16-term Congressman Barney Frank. And that's an amazing interview, and I think we'll have some books too. For, Adore him. For yes. Thank you gifts. In case you missed Tracy Chapman on David Letterman last week performing Stand By Me, it was the bomb. Okay. So we're going to close the show with it. And stand by KPFK and support IMRU and Progressive Radio as we are going to start a content-driven approach to our fun drive over these next few weeks. Stay tuned. It'll be exciting. Thank you, guys. Good night. Good night. night. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we see No, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me Darling, stand by me Oh, stand by me Oh, stand Stand by me If the sky we look upon Should tumble and fall Or the mountains 
Stand by me, stand by me, stand by me. 